In chapter 22, verse 9, we begin the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment is adultery. And this is a section, chapter 22, verse 9 through 23, verse 18. Now, once again, all these laws, God is unpacking them further than what you would ever think. So where you immediately assume that it's adultery, that's not where he begins. So in verse 9, you must not plant your vineyard with two kinds of seed. Otherwise, the entire yield, both of the seed and the plant and the produce of the vineyard will be defiled. You must not plow with an ox and a donkey harnessed together. You must not wear clothing made with wool and linen meshed together. You shall make yourself tassels for the four corners of your clothing you wear. What in the world does this have to do with adultery? What it has to do is mixing two things that are not supposed to be mixed together. <clears throat> so adultery is when you combine a man or a woman with another man or woman that they were never meant to be with because they don't have a covenant with them. And that is the most... Um, idolatry and adultery are the worst inappropriate mixings you could ever do. But God continues that forward and he gives it in this sense. So planting your vineyard with two kinds of seed. We know now today that that's not healthy for any of the crops or the soil to cram that much into one area. Now, once again, we're not talking about like doing square foot gardening where you like rope things off and plant all the things. We're talking about fields and just mixing everything together. And you must not wear two different kinds of clothing or fabrics together. And you're like, well, what's but I have 50% cotton, 50% polyester. Why is that wrong? Well, this is specifically mentioning wool and linen because that was a common thing of the pagans. And the pagans would mix these two animals together. And so you have the linen, which is a fabric, and then you have wool, which comes from an animal, and they mix together, and that was done in the pagan rituals. We do not fully understand why the pagans did that in a ritualistic pagan kind of a sense that's been lost in the records. But there was something about it. And God is saying you're not allowed to dress like them. And we talked about this last week. This, if your dress associates you with a certain kind of people that are not godly, and everybody thinks about those ungodly people when they think of that dress or that outfit, then that's something that you should abstain from so that people don't automatically assume that you're connected with those ideologies. The donkey and the ox not yoking together, we know that that's not good either. There's no way that those two animals can work together. <laughs> a donkey barely works with anything well. A donkey and ox being yoked together, and it won't work out for you. So in this sense, what he's communicating is that mixing two things that do not belong together create devastating effects. Putting an ox and a donkey together is devastating. Mixing two seeds in the same field is devastating. Wearing these clothing together is not going to last. And one of the other reasons why you don't put linen and wool together is because they stretch and um, constrain and all and completely different. And they're just going to rip apart. And so these are devastating. And so mixing two things that don't belong is devastating to your life, your fields, your work, whatever. In the same way that mixing two people that don't belong together because they don't have a covenant with each other is devastating to your life. In the same way that mixing two people, the Canaanites and the Israelites together, 
will be devastating to your community. And so in the same way that not eating unclean food and eating clean was to remind them to remain distinct, these things are, are to remind them that not only is this not beneficial for your production, but it has a deeper practical application that on a Canaanite Israelite level, or a I'm not married to you, I'm married to somebody else's level, the, the devastation is far greater. And if little simple things like this can devastate your life, then how much devastating would violating your covenant with God and your covenant with your spouse going to devastate your life? And so once again, not all these things are technically like immoral. <clears throat> they just become very good practical examples. Don't do them as a very practical reminder. Don't do that on the immoral things as well. If amoral things can ruin things, then immoral things are definitely going to destroy your life in a certain sense. Now he ends it up with this tassels on the four corners of your clothing, which doesn't specifically, like, there's no mixing here. But remember we talked about this in Numbers, at the very end of Numbers, is that they had robes and they would wear tassels. And these tassels had knots and, and frou-frou things, like at the end of your oriental rugs. And they basically, the nonsense have told your lineage, like a kilt in the, from the Scots in Ireland. And so the pattern told your lineage. And I can immediately know what family you're from and what your position in your family was. And they were to weave this red and blue thread through to mark them, not only in their own family or tribe, but unique to Yahweh. These two threads in their tassels were to remind them that they belong to the family of God. And so that is a very fitting summary to this, because what God is reminding them is, you belong to me. You are in a covenant relationship with me. And just as you're not allowed to mix these two things that don't go together, you're not allowed to mix with any other covenants, any other gods, any other people, any other communities, because you've been marked by me. And these tassels, like a wedding ring, should be a constant reminder to you of your covenant with me. Don't mix yourself with other covenant gods. And that's how this fits into adultery. It's not just a sexual thing. It's the way that you conduct your life and the people you hang out with and the way that you mix with other people. Now we actually get into the purity of the marriage. Starting with verse 13 through verse 19, there's seven cases that he's going to deal with. Verse 13, suppose a man marries a woman, has sexual relations with her, and then rejects her accusing her of impropriety and defaming her reputation by saying, I married this woman, but when I had sexual relations with her, I discovered she was not a virgin. Then the father and the mother of the young woman must produce evidence of the virginity for the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father must say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man, and he has rejected her. Moreover, he has raised an accusation of impropriety by saying, I discovered your daughter was not a virgin. But this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. The cloth must then be spread out before the city's elders. The elders of that city must then seize the man, punish him, and they will fine him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the young woman's father. And the man who made the accusation ruined the reputation of an Israelite virgin. She will then become his wife, and he may never divorce her as long as he lives." 
Interesting court case. So basically, a man has married a woman, and for whatever reason, he decides that he doesn't want to be with her. But rather than publicly admitting, I'm the problem, I'm incapable of love, I'm incapable of sticking out with a covenant promise, he decides to blame her and blame the family and accuse her of not being a virgin when they first got married. So he's basically accusing her of fornication before marriage in order to save himself face and this divorce. The father and the mother must present evidence. Now, what they would do when you got married is that the father and the mother, you go into the wedding chambers and you would have sex, and the first time she had sex, she would bleed, and she'd bleed on the sheets. Talk about an awkward honeymoon. The mother and the father would then come in to the room, grab the sheets, and ceremonially fold them up and keep them and save them because this became proof that she was truly a virgin. And they would store them away in some kind of chest somewhere and hold it. Because who knows how long there might be an accusation. So it's unlike, unlike the IRS, they, don't have, they have longer than seven years. So this guy then comes in, and now the father and the mother can come out with a sheet and say, she was a virgin. This is proof. So that's the evidence that they're presenting to protect their daughter from a false accusation. Now remember, even though God gave far more rights to women than any other culture, protected them as being equal to men, does not mean that men did not mistreat women in a male-dominated culture that they lived in. The culture that surrounded them was not kind to women. Men were very dominant and very oppressive. And though God's law is giving women great sanctity, great value, Remember, these Israelites are a product of their culture. And it doesn't change the fact that men might use this as an excuse to get out of a marriage. And so this is the punishment. So now he is publicly disgraced. He has to pay a fine, and he has to take care of her the rest of his life, which, which he should have done to begin with. Now, I know that seems like a little unfair, like, oh, poor woman, like, She's now stuck with this guy. Try to. But that's so many other marriages too. I mean, really, you don't honestly know exactly what you're getting into when you're married. I mean, you can do the best you can, but people change, things happen, and God requires you to stay committed forever because that's the promise that you made. And most importantly, your promise is based on the fact that you reflect the image of God and God never divorces his people, period even to the point of dying for his adulterous bride. And so, yes, it seems very unfair. Yes, it's not right to her. But at the same time, this is a marriage covenant relationship. Now, next court case, verse 20. But if the accusation is true and the young woman was not a virgin, the men of her city must bring the young woman to the door of her father's house and stone her to death. For she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by behaving like a prostitute while living in her father's house. And this way you will purge the evil from among you. This is a harsh crime. And this is something that would not go over well in America. But the reality, once again, is this is a violation of the covenant. So it's not favorable towards men or women. It's favorable towards the law. And if the man is guilty, he's punished. Now, false accusation is not the same thing as violating a covenant. 
he does not warrant the death penalty because he's a false accusation. And though that is damaging, is wrong, is ungodly, and God will hold him accountable to that, that is not the same amount of crime. For her, she was violating covenant. And what God takes more seriously than anything is covenants. And remember, there's only two covenants that you're ever going to make in your entire life. The covenant you make with God and the covenant you make with your spouse. And the same way that violating covenant with God, idolatry, was punishable by death, therefore also the violating of an earthly covenant is punishable by death as well. Because God sees that commitment as the same. In the sense of if you're making a commitment to this person and your family is supposed to be the reflection of God, then if you can't honor that commitment, then there's no way you're going to honor your commitment with God. In fact, by the fact that you're doing that, means you've automatically dishonored your commitment and your covenant with God. And so she is then to be stoned. Next court case, verse 22. If a man is caught having sexual relations with a married woman, both the man who had the relations with the woman and the woman herself must die. This way you will purge the evil from Israel. Now this is a very powerful paragraph that's already been talked about in other books of the Bible. But what's very important to understand is that when a man is caught in having an affair, what happens to the man and the woman? They both die. That's huge. Because in every other culture, the man pays a fine and the woman's killed. And this shows you the great value and equality that God is giving the female as well as the male. I know it's very famous for people to accuse the Bible of being sexist because there are so many cases where it applies to the man, the man only. But a lot of times it's symbology of the fact that Christ is the man and the bride is the church, and we're always guilty in that situation. But you have to realize that this passage clearly defines that this is the only culture that we know of during this time period where the man is punished to the same extent as the woman is. That does not show up. Now, maybe later cultures, yes, but this time period, this is the only culture that we know in record history. And this is huge. Because one thing that you must understand, and I've talked about this in other studies, but you have to understand that the Bible is the only religion and the only textbook or religious law that gives women value. And the only reason that women have value in America, and, and I know it could be argued that they don't have as much value as they should, and I would totally agree with that, but they do have more value than any other culture. The only reason that women do have value in America and that they're able to have a foundation for the feminist movement and the equal rights is because we are rooted in the biblical principles of the value of a man and woman. Now, granted, we have a gray history of equality, but the fact that we at least understand that and are thriving for it and pursuing it means that we're, that makes us unique. So you have to understand that. Now, it's very common for people to see why would we read boring Deuteronomy. We go to the Gospels, and the woman is called an adultery, and they accuse Jesus of being a sexist, because, or all the Israelites, because they want to stone the woman, and they are not willing to kill the man. Well, one, you can't accuse the Bible of being sexist when it's rooted in Deuteronomy that makes it very clear. Now, you can accuse the people of being sexist, but that's not the same thing as the Bible being sexist. 
And to that, I'm not going to defend any Jew during the time of Jesus. They got serious amount of problems, just like us. So, but you have to understand, too, that, that that was not the issue. If you read the context, it has nothing to do with punishing this woman. Jesus is getting set up. And the whole idea is that either the man cannot be found, which means you can't punish him, and that's true of any crime, or two, the man, this is all Jesus being set up. But Jesus shows here, too, that he is not going to play that sexist game. He's not going to play that political game. He's not going to play the inequality game. But most importantly, he's not going to play the they have the right to judge sin game. And so that's a completely different context of what's going on than just, hey, let's excuse the guy. And maybe they were excusing the guy too, but that was their problem. And God is, and Jesus already accused them multiple occasions of violating the law and being hypocrites and having problems. So verse 23, if a virgin is engaged to a man and another man meets her in the city and has sexual relations with her, you must bring the two of them to the gate of the city and stone them to death. The young woman, because she did not cry out through the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's fiance, and this way you will purge evil from among you. Now, this is interesting because the idea is that they sleep with each other. They're both to be stoned. Now, one could accuse him of raping the girl, but the idea is that if she was truly being raped, she would have screamed, and everybody would have heard the scream, and then there would have been evidence of the rape, and then only he would be stoned. But the fact that she didn't cry out and didn't scream means that this is mutual. And so she's committing adultery because, remember, being a fiancé at that time period was considered being married. In our culture, it's not until you say, I do, that you're legally bound to them and considered married and then have to get divorced. And even that's not technically being bound together anymore in our culture. You can get annulled or just get, I mean, divorce is really easy to get anymore. But in that culture, the minute you say, yes, I'll marry you, or I'm engaged, you're automatically considered legally bound to them. And we see this even in the Gospels, where it says that Joseph was engaged to Mary and sought to divorce her. And you're like, wait a minute, but you're not married yet. Technically, yes, you are. Because when you say, I do, you said, I do. And so she is considered committing adultery here. But, verse 25, if the man came across the engaged woman in the field and overpowered her and raped her, then only the rapist must die. You must not do anything to the young woman. She has done nothing deserving of death. And this case is the same as when someone attacks another person and murders him. And for the man met her in the field and engaged the woman and cried out, but there was no one to rescue her. Now this case says if they're out in the fields, then only he is to be killed, but she is let go. And the implication is way out in the fields and no one can hear the screams. And so the implication is she probably did scream out, but nobody can hear her, therefore he's guilty. Now you say, well, but what if she didn't scream out? What if it was mutual? It's also very, very unlikely that a woman is going to go on her own with a man out into the fields that far away. It's very easy to sneak away in the city and get back within a few minutes or whatever. But to go out in the fields is a long journey. And there's no way... No way in this culture that a father or a brother is going to let his sister go with another man all by themselves before they've gone through the ceremony. 
And so at that time, even in our colonial days of America, like if you, you, this is my favorite thing in history, when the guy would come over and visit the girl, they would like stitch him in a bag and that kind of stuff, and they would attend him, and somebody would be in the room and that kind of stuff. It's like, first of all, why did they even have to lie next to each other? You're not married. There's no point in stitching if you just put them in separate chairs in the room. So, but the reality is you were never left unattended in those scenarios. Only today do we drop middle school girls off at the mall and then drive away for the rest of the night. But when the ancient time period, you never, ever, ever left your sister or your daughter unattended, no matter how noble this guy was that he was going to marry, no matter how many minutes you are away from the wedding day, you don't leave them unattended. And so the fact that a young girl could take a several, many, 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 many minutes, walk into the fields with a man unattended, and come back completely unattended and not be noticed means that something devious was happening here, that she was caught off guard and that kind of stuff. And so that's the reality is that this is very unlikely in that culture. Therefore, she's out there. She has been separated in some way, and she definitely would have screamed. And so in that sense, she is free, but he is executed. And this is important, too, because even as a raper, um, or rapist, sorry, um, he is executed and put to death. And the same thing goes for the murder. Because what he's basically saying, we've already talked about murder, and we've already talked about the way that you deal with someone who's a murderer, so therefore you apply this to rapists as well. Verse 28, suppose a man comes across a virgin who's not engaged and overpowers and rapes her, and they discovered that the man who has raped her must pay her father 50 shekels of silver, and she must become his wife because he has violated her, and he may never divorce her as long as he lives. So this one's interesting because now the rapist is required to marry her and pay a fine. And this implication, the idea is that most scholars agree that this is probably someone she's already dating, somebody she's already engaged, someone she's already interested in. And so the implication is this might be more like date rape or something like that. In that sense, she wanted to be with him, but he went way too far. And so in that sense, it may not be exactly rape. And I know that this is going to be like really like touchy for some people, but that they were wanting to be together and they were intended for each other, but they were doing it before they were allowed to do, or he went a little too far and she said no. And that's not the exact same as some guy just grabbing you and raping you. It's, but remember, at the same time, none of these court cases are absolute, this is what you have to do in every single scenario. We already saw in the book of Numbers in Exodus that God is laying out court cases for the judges. And in many places in the book of Numbers, God is leaving it to the discretion of the judge. And so he's basically laying out a court case and then another type of court case, which can kind of be ruled in different ways. And the idea is as a judge then, when he's hearing these court cases, he has the right to determine, okay, is this two women, two, or sorry, two women, two young people who are dating each other and they're love and they're passionate and they start getting carried away and she said no, but he wouldn't stop. That's not exactly the same thing as a guy grabbing you in the middle of the night somewhere. And so the judge has the ability to determine the difference between these things. What God is doing, he's laying out examples and saying that if this happens, this is severe. If this happens, it's not as severe. Now it's up to your job with your discernment and prayer to determine where 
does this particular individual case fall? Because we all know not every single case is exactly like every single case. And so what God is laying out is these are the punishments, but you as a judge have the ability to discern where on the spectrum is this particular violation of the law. Then the last one is a man may not marry his father's former wife and this way dishonor his father. So basically he says that if your father is married and then he dies or something happens, the son is not allowed to marry the woman. Now the implication is this is not the son's mother. So this could be a second wife. I mean, remember polygamy was very common and now he's dead and it's gone. Now, this is interesting because you're like, okay, we don't, I mean, yes, we have rape in America. Yes, we have this in America. Yes, but I don't remember a lot of times of turning on the television and finding a guy marrying his dad's former wife. That seems a little weird. Now, one of the reasons that is, is because this was a common way of usurping your father's power and authority. And so you could do it to take the, so you're basically taking your father's authority, his power, and you're applying it to you, which basically means you're trying to treat your, 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 your father's wife as some kind of business deal. And so you're not really interested in her. You're interested in what she represented to your father in some kind of business sense or a kingship sense or something like that, and you're wanting to carry those over to yourself. And so you're thinking this marriage is going to give you the right to something rather than the word. Now this is interesting because then this makes... Um, many of the people in the, the kings in the Bible violators of this law. So David took the wives of Saul. That doesn't technically count in this law because Saul wasn't David's dad, but Solomon took the wives of his father, David, and so forth and so forth. And so that was not an uncommon thing. So this makes many, many, many of the kings violators of the law in that sense. But once again, once you read the book of Kings, that's very minor compared to all the other things that they were doing as well. So any questions?